So we will be taking a break from 2 Samuel. I believe you guys are in, in Psalm 103. So it's still David's. It's basically the same thing. But we'll take a little break uh, and preach from Psalm 103. So you can turn there this morning, as you do. Uh, we all know, if you've been a Christian for a while, you, you know your Bible a little bit, there are some passages that are no less uh, inspired or anything like that, but you have some passages that are kind of your meat and potatoes texts, you know, love your enemy, uh, love your neighbor, you know, love God, all that kind of stuff. You're like, great, thank you, yes. And then you have other passages that seem to just kind of take you to the mountaintop. And you just see beauty everywhere you look. And in my opinion, Psalm 103 is one of those mountaintop passages. In fact, Charles Spurgeon, the great Baptist preacher, said this, As in the lofty Alps, some peaks rise above all others. So among even the inspired Psalms, there are, there are songs over, uh, sorry, there are heights of song which overtop the rest. This 103rd Psalm has ever seemed to be the Mount Rosa, which is the highest peak in the Swiss Alps, of the divine chain of the mountains of praise, glowing brighter than all the rest. And so I want to look at this and go to the mountaintop this morning as we look at this sermon. And what we're going to see as we gaze at this passage is King David, this man after God's own heart, go into his prayer closet, if you will, go before his Lord and our Lord in prayer. And he's going to experience something that I would wager every single person in this room has also experienced, maybe even experience it today. And he's going to fight it with a tool that every single person in this room has. And we'll get to see the result of him fighting uh, by the end of this psalm. But go ahead and turn to verse 1. We'll look at it. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Stop there. Notice something here, because this is key to understanding the entire psalm. Who is David talking to? Bless the Lord, O my soul. Not talking to God, not talking to others who are watching him pray, talking to his own soul. You see this in the Psalms sometimes. You see it probably most famously in Psalm 42 when you see, Why are you so downcast, O my soul? Rise up, praise God. And so David here similarly talking to his own soul. What's happening? Here's the scene. David, again, this great The man after God's own heart is going to pray, gets on his knees before his God, and he feels dry spiritually. His soul feels apathetic. It's as if God is a million miles away. He's uh, wondering, is God even listening to me? Is there even any point in praying anymore? I would wager, again, if you've been a Christian, you're not, maybe you, at least not me, don't go floating into the prayer room just in, you know, indescribable ecstasy all the time, just you're seeing Jesus face to face. You never know a day of what it feels like to live this difficult human life, but at least I have. And so David is feeling it. And here's, here's, here's the question. If that's his problem, his heart is dry, what is his solution? What is he going to do about it? Is he going to say, I guess I'll just pray tomorrow? Maybe I'll wake up on the right side of the bed. Maybe I'll wake up more in tune with the Spirit. Is he just going to kind of reason his way out of it? You know, God's sovereign is a really matter that I pray. I know we have to say that, but he's in control anyway, right? Does he just kind of reason his way out of it? No. What does David do? Does he let his feelings and his emotions rule his actions? 
No, what he's going to do, and what we're actually going to see for the rest of this psalm, is David is going to grab a hold of the truth that he knows here about God, and he's going to pour the living water of God's truth over his dry soul. He's not feeling anything here, but he knows what God says here. And so he's, in a sense, instead of listening to his heart, he's going to preach to his heart. And as we look through the psalm, we're going to see he's going to preach specifically God's salvation, God's character, and God's compassion, and then lastly, God's kingdom. And by the end of this, we'll see again the results. So that's the situation. Look at verse 2. We'll see this first section, him preaching God's salvation to his own heart. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. So you see this first bucket of living water that he's going to pour over his dry heart, God's salvation. And where does he start? Forgiveness. You are the one, O oh God, who forgives all my iniquity. Why does he start with forgiveness? Quite simply, if you don't start with forgiveness, there's no point in talking any further. If you don't have forgiveness, there's no point in examining any other benefits. There's an infinite gap between sinful man and an infinitely holy God. And if you don't have something to bridge that gap, if you don't have forgiveness to bridge that divide, healing's going to be temporary. Redemption will never lead to reconciliation and satisfaction will be short, short, short lived. And so the first thing David tells his heart, drink this in. He has forgiven all your iniquity. He doesn't stop there. What does he say next? Cries out, you are the one, O God, who heals all my diseases. You redeem my life from the pit, from the grave. You redeem my life from the grave. He's saying, when I was at death's door, when death was so close, it was like it's had, it had its fingers already wrapped around me. You redeemed me. You pulled me out of the pit. Think about David's life. Before we really even see his life get started, apparently he was commonly fighting lions and bears. They would take a sheep and run off. And, you know, he goes to fight Goliath and Saul's like, why can you go? And he's just nonchalant resume. Oh, well, some lions. Yeah, I'm a shepherd. And some lions have taken off some sheep. And so I would just go kill them real quick. Apparently with his bare hands. We don't know how that goes. I'm sure he wasn't in a, you know, blind, slowly feeding it for a long time and shooting it from a perch, you know, space above it like we do. You know, he always gets this rep as a skinny guy. Seems to be a little bit more manly than we think. But I think dangerous, right? He goes and fights Goliath, someone so terrifying that the whole army is cowering away from this one man. He's dodging death from his own family, his father-in-law, as he's serving him, playing the harp, throws a spear at him multiple times, his father-in-law hunting him down, Saul, while he's hiding in caves. David is uh, very, very acquainted with the idea of being on death's door. And he says here, it wasn't my craftiness or my skill that let me escape death. It was you. You saved me. You healed me from the pit. God has forgiven him, healed him, redeemed him. And then look what David does in verse 4. He keeps going, Who crowns you 
with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. Look, notice this. He doesn't just meditate. He's not just thinking on what God has saved him from. He keeps going to what God has saved him for. If you just focus on what God has saved you from, what he's forgiven you from, you're kind of just back to square one. You're kind of just back to neutral. But David pushes on to see, not only did you save me from death, you've filled me with life. You didn't just remove negative from my life. You overflowed and poured out positive. You crowned me, not with perishable things like jewels or gold or silver, but you crowned me with your steadfast love and your mercy. You are the one who satisfies me with your own goodness, so much so that it feels like my, the life of my youth has been restored. You can almost hear the words of Psalm 16. In your presence, O God, there's fullness of joy. At your right hand, there is pleasure forevermore. You make me full. There's no lack. There's no reason to look anywhere else for my satisfaction. I have no good apart from you. You don't just take away the negative. You don't just clear me of the bad. You fill me with life and joy and goodness that are in your right hand. So pushes past what God has saved him from to what God has saved him for that is so, so, so important for us to learn how to do preaching, following his example here. Your heart is dry, not listening to your feelings and saying, eh, maybe another time, but praying like David is praying, taking the truths of the gospel and reminding yourself over and over and over again. And the problem for most of us, if we're honest with ourselves, most of us, when we go to pray, our mindset is almost exactly backwards. It's what you, know, you might call self-righteous moralism. We usually go into the, the prayer room or go into our quiet time focused not on what God has done, but on what we have done. Not on His works, but our works. And when you do that, there's only two possible results. You'll either feel guilty that you haven't already been praying enough you haven't woken up at 4 a.m. instead of 5 a.m. or something like that and reading the Bible in Greek and Hebrew or something like that. You'll feel shame and you'll feel guilt and you'll be crushed by it. Or you'll feel pride. I bet no one else is waking up this early. I bet I'm praying more than anybody else. And then all of a sudden you start to think, not what God's given you, but what God owes you. Because look how good you've been. Look how faithful you've been. Here's the problem with that. Neither one of those things, guilt or pride, is ever going to stir your heart to worship God. Neither one of those things is ever going to orient a dry heart to where it can be filled and refreshed with the living water of God. That is exactly backwards, focusing on our works. Do you see how radically different David's prayer is? He's not focused on what he's done for God. He's focused on what God has done for him. In David's mind, what has David contributed? Iniquity that needs to be forgiven falling into a pit, apparently. Disease, that's David's contribution. Rather, it's God that brings salvation in spite of David. That's the living water that he's pouring over his own soul. Pray like that. Go in to the Lord's presence knowing, as Jonathan Edwards said, you contributed nothing to your salvation except the sin that made it necessary. And it's his work that will stir you to praise him for his goodness. That's the first bucket 
of living water that David is pouring over his dry soul, God's salvation. But he doesn't stop there. Doesn't stop there. So after seeing God's salvation, the natural next question you would ask yourself is, who is this God who does things like this? Who is it? What's the character of a God that would forgive such blatant iniquity and would redeem from the pit and would fill with life and would heal every disease? And that's exactly what David goes to next. Not God's salvation, but God's character. That's the next bucket of living water. Look at verse 6. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. The first element of God's character that he is going to bring out and meditate on to try and stir his own heart is this. God is the perfect, impartial, just judge who sees the unseen. Sees the ones the world rejects. The ones that world, uh, the world thinks, not worth my time. Not going to be a lot of return on that investment, yet the just judge sees and works righteousness and justice for everyone who is oppressed. Deuteronomy 10, 17 through 18 says this, For the Lord your God is the God of gods and the Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, the awesome God who is not partial and takes no bribe. He executes justice for the fatherless and the widow, and he loves the sojourner and gives food and clothing to the needy. And this in David's day is radical in our day, but in David's day, it's, it's incredibly countercultural. In David's day, it was thought that the gods, the so-called gods, uh, only associated with the people on top, right? That it was assumed, if you're rich, if you're powerful, if you're mighty, it's because the gods care about you and have given you divine favor. And so therefore, if you want to be rich and powerful, serve the gods because they care about the rich and powerful. Yet, not so with Yahweh. Yahweh, on the other hand, says this of himself, Psalm 68, sing to God, sing praises to his name, a father of the fatherless, and a protector of widows. He doesn't show partiality to the high, cla- high class. He can't be bought with a bribe. He gives justice and righteousness to the pressed. And there's no one, no matter how far on the fringes of society, that goes unseen by him. One of my favorite stories is in Genesis 16. It's a, it's a weird story to have as one of your favorites. But God has, has promised Abraham and Sarah, you're going to have a kid. And if you know Genesis well, you know the story. They struggle with some doubt. And Sarah says, why don't you take my servant girl, Hagar, and sleep with her and have a kid by her. So Hagar, a servant girl, goes and is uh, put into this situation. And then after, it works. She becomes pregnant. She's treated very harshly and sent out into the wilderness. I, I'm sure maybe there is one. I can't imagine a lower situation. Servant girl forced into this, sent out into the wilderness after being treated harshly by the ones who put you into this situation. And she's off in the wilderness kind of waiting to die. And God comes to her and tells her of the plans he has for her son. And she says this, surely you are a God who sees. Surely you are a God who sees, who looks after me. There is no depths you can go where this just judge doesn't see you. 
There is no faint cry he doesn't hear. You hear almost the words of Psalm 139. Where shall I go from your spirit? Where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. That's the first thing David's holding up saying, that's who my God is. The one who man can't buy off. The one who sees the unseen. The just judge who works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. So he's looking at his character. That's the first thing he brings out. You're the perfect and just judge, but he keeps going. Verse 7, he made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the people of Israel. The Lord is merciful, gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. So this is the second piece of his character. He's the just judge. Here's piece number two. He made known his ways to Moses which you may ask, perhaps rightfully so, what in the world does that have to do with God's character? He just showed up to Moses. What does that have to do in this weird section about God's character? What David is actually doing here is he's quoting, he's referencing and, and one of the most significant moments of Israel's history. We have the Exodus, the most significant moment in Israel's history, and then right after the covenant of God and on their wedding night, what do we see? Adultery. We see the golden calf, behold your gods that brought you out of Egypt, idolatry before the honeymoon is over. And Moses prays and Moses intercedes and God forgives these wicked rebels that God has just delivered, yet they rebel against him. God forgives them. And then Moses, as a reaction, says, show me your glory. Similar to David here, what kind of a God forgives such blatant sin I want to see your face. Show me your glory. And God says, in a sense, no, you can't see my face and live, but here's what I'll do. I'll pass before you and I'll declare to you my name. I'll declare to you my, my character. And he says this in Exodus 34, the Lord passed before him, Moses, and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children's and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. This event where God makes known to Moses who he is his character, his name. And remember what happens next. It's so transforming. This encounter with the living God from Moses is so transforming. What does he have to do when he goes back into the camp? His face is too bright. He has to put a veil over it. And that's exactly what David is quoting here. He made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the people of Israel. He's merciful. He's gracious. He's slow to anger in abounding and steadfast love. So how does that actually stir you to worship? If that's David's goal, get this dry heart that's not praising the Lord, that's not blessing the Lord, to praise the Lord, how does that actually stir your heart to worship? Two ways. Number one, simply the reality that your God is a God who reveals who He is. Your God is a God who reveals who He is. That's something we so often Miss Again, David's day. If you want to know who the gods are, what do you do? You have to read the tea leaves. You have to take a sheep and cut it open and have a pagan priest read its liver. You have to guess 
because the gods don't tell you, right? They're up doing this and you've got to do crazy things in order to just get an inkling and guess about what your God is like. Again, not so with David's God. Not so with your God or my God. Our God is a God who comes down and makes himself known. David is essentially saying to his heart, do you see how incredible this is? The infinite, eternal God of the universe stoops down to reveal who he is to rebels. How could that not stir your heart towards worship? The fact that we don't serve an abstract God that requires us to figure him out. He's not a grandpa far off with his arms crossed saying, you better do the right thing and I'm not going to tell you the right thing so you better figure it out and guess right. Rather, our God is a God who comes down and says, come, know me. The very fact that you are in a church right now as a Christian, if you are, as a Christian is because your God comes down and says, know me. When you're straying, he goes after you and says, come back. Sins ultimately his son, his exact perfect revelation, and says, know me as my child. We'll look at that more in a second. But that's the first thing. God is a God who comes down and reveals who he is. But David doesn't stop there. He doesn't say he reveals who he is. He goes further to say, look what he reveals. He's merciful, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. Theoretically, God could have revealed that he's a tyrant comes down and says, look, I love chaos and I love evil and I require child sacrifice. Could have done that. David says, look what he reveals instead. What is the character that David is lifting up? He's merciful and he's gracious. He's slow to anger. He's not quick-tempered like so many of us are. He's abounding in steadfast love. This faithful covenant love that he has for his people abounds. He will not always chide. He will not always rebuke, nor will he keep his anger forever. What David's getting at here is even in his anger, there's, there's, it's infused with mercy. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. The revealed character of God, quite simply, is infinitely greater than anything we could have thought up or imagined in our own minds. So again here, David is reminding his own soul Look to your God and say, I know who you are. You're the God who can't be bought. You're the God who sees the forgotten. You're the one who comes down and reveals your incredible character, that you're merciful, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. It's not just what you've done. It's who you are that pours the fresh living water over my dry soul. You see David here. He's not stopping at what God has done for him. He's pushing on to who God is. He doesn't view God as some divine butler. Do stuff for me, and if you're not doing stuff for me, I have no need for you. Rather, he wants to know who God is, the character of his God. That's why you were redeemed. That's why you were made to know your creator. We see at John 17, Jesus says in his prayer to the Father, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the one true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. All the things we've looked at in God's salvation, forgiveness, redemption, all these things were so that you could be adopted. You could be brought in. 
you could be reconciled and you could know and share in communion with the God who has saved you. Or to say it another way, God is not a means to some other end. He's not the way you get to happiness where your ultimate end is happiness. He is the ultimate end. And David sees it. The Lord is my portion and my cup. I have no good apart from you. You are my treasure. All my riches are in you. He sees, praise God for what you've done, but praise you for who you are. That's what stirs my heart to worship. So he sees that, sees God's salvation, sees his incredible character. And kind of the last question that he has is, how does a God of that character deal with sinful man? How does a God, if he is who he says he is, that he's merciful, gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love, how does that character spill over to deal with creation that has rebelled against him? And David next is going to look right at that question, and he's going to see primarily a God of that character is compassionate. A God of that character is compassionate. Verse 10 He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. What does it look like for a God who is merciful, gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love when he sees the sins of his people? What does he do? Quite simply, he doesn't give us what we deserve. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. Again, the the self-righteous moralist heart gets this exactly backwards. We would say, okay, yes, I'm a sinner. I have to say that because we're Christians, right? I'm a sinner, yes, but I go to church, I tithe, I try to raise my kids right with good ethics and they're conservative and all these different things. Plus, who are we kidding? I'm not the one ruining the world. Those other people are the ones ruining the world, right? There's always a worse example uh, than you. And, And quite honestly, I think I'm doing a lot of good things for God. So what's the big deal? And then when hard times come your way, what do you say? What's, what gives? What gives God, right? He's the one you lash out at. You owe me. There it is again. You're essentially saying, I've been good, basically. And so therefore, you owe me, God. And David here is saying, you're right. He does owe you. You're just wrong about what he owes you. Because if you've sinned once, against an infinitely holy God. He owes you one thing, infinite, eternal, just wrath. You're saying, if you have that kind of idea of, I'm basically good, right? I've done good, now give me what I deserve. And David's saying, he has seen everything you've done, and praise God, he does not give you what you deserve. He does not deal with us according to our sins nor repay us according to our iniquities. In fact, David goes one step further. Look at verse 11. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion on those who fear him. Not only... Does he not give us the punishment that our sins deserve, but rather he removes our iniquity. 
Notice the unthinkable contrast here. He doesn't give us the wrathful punishment that we deserve. Instead, what does he give us? A love that cannot be measured. A love that cannot be measured. As high as the heavens are above the earth, David says. I I, I read that imagery and I think of uh, my parents. I don't know if your parents are the same. My parents, I guess, when describing this, this love that they had for their children. This, that every parent knows there's this just ball. It feels like your chest is going to pop open because there's just this infinite love. And my parents would say something like, I love you to the moon and back. And David is essentially saying, look up and tell me when you reach the end of the heavens. That is how great his steadfast love is for you. Look west and tell me when it meets the east. They're always getting further and further and further and further apart. The idea is they're never going to meet. That's how far he's removed your transgressions, a word that means your crimes against him. That's how far he's removed your transgressions from you. His compassion to you is like a father to his kids. I have two kids now, and so I I feel like I know a little bit of this indescribable love for them. And the irony is the weaker they are, the worse they, they are at just being little humans, the more my heart goes out to them, the more I love them, the more I want to scoop them up and just teach them and love them and show them the right way. And similarly here, God knows your weaknesses more than anyone, better than you, better than your spouse. He knows your weaknesses better than anyone. And your weaknesses don't frustrate him. Rather, they draw him closer to you. As a father shows compassion on his children, so the Lord shows compassion on those who fear him. They don't move him to exhale out of frustration. They move him to compassion. David keeps going. Verse 14, for he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. As for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field for the wind passes over it and it is gone and its place remembers it no more. It kind of seems like David is changing the subject here. What's he doing? Essentially, remember what he's been doing. He's meditating on the salvation of God, the character of God, and the compassion of God, all in an attempt to pour this this living water over his dry soul. And here he takes a break of looking at all these incredible things of God and looks at self and says, there's nothing here. There's nothing here in me that would ever stir my heart to worship. David has no illusions of self-motivation, that he just needs to be his best self, that he just needs to realize his full potential or any of the other things that sell all the really fun self-help books. Rather, David looks at himself and he sees fragile, quickly forgotten dust. Dust. I dare not look here, he's essentially saying, if I want comfort. And then he looks back up and, oh, look at what he finds. Verse 17, man is dust, quickly forgotten, but the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him and his righteousness to children's children, to those who keep his covenant and remember to do his commandments. What's David saying? Again, when I look here, I see nothing but weakness. I see nothing but fickle, temporary satisfaction. But oh, when I look up, 
I see a love, a steadfast love that is everlasting, that is not temporary, everlasting and a righteousness that pours over generations. He's essentially getting at the New Testament, Matthew 5, Sermon on the Mount idea of blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Those who know there's nothing here to merit salvation, those who know there's nothing here that would ever comfort, they have to look elsewhere for their righteousness. They have to look to someone else if they're going to be saved. You were made quite simply, to live and move and have your being, not here, not in yourself, not looking here for motivation or comfort, but in Him. Don't look anywhere else for your satisfaction. Look down, you're going to see dust, forgotten quickly. Your great-grandkids will struggle to remember your name. I hate to break it to you. There's one name that will last forever. Look up. Don't look to self for satisfaction Augustine, the great theologian of the early church, says this. What does ambition seek except honor and glory? But only you, Lord, have a glory forever that can never be lost. What is the power of the mighty desire except to be feared? But none has a power that can never be seized or stolen but you. What do the lonely and the anxious long for except a love they cannot lose? But who can give a love that does not fade and die but you? What does weariness seek except rest? But what sure rest is there apart from you? Thus the soul commits adultery when it turns from you and seeks these things which it cannot find except in you. O Lord, you made us for yourself, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. Don't look here. For comfort, you'll just find dust. Look up and you'll find steadfast love that is everlasting and righteousness that is for children's children. So David has been on quite a journey throughout this psalm. He starts off apathetic, preaching to his own soul, and he's been pouring this living water of God's salvation, God's character, and God's compassionate love. And here at the end, we kind of see the results of his meditating. Verse 19, the Lord established his throne in the heavens and his kingdom rules over all. Bless the Lord, O you his angels, you mighty ones who do his word, obeying the voice of his word. Bless the Lord, all his hosts, his ministers who do his will. Bless the Lord, all his works in all places of his dominion. Bless the Lord, O my soul. What's happening here? Quite simply, David's heart has been revived. David's heart that was dry moments before has now been revived. He, see God, he sees God on his heavenly throne. The Lord established his throne in the heavens. His kingdom rules over all. And he's not talking to his soul anymore. Who's he talking to? Everything. Starts with angels, works his way down to all of creation saying, join in praising this magnificent, glorious God who sits enthroned forever, enthroned forever in the heavens. Angels praise him. Ministers praise him. Works praise him. All creation praise him. Quite simply, when you've experienced something incredible, something beautiful, your natural impulse is to share it. And if you have an Instagram, I bet I'll find pictures of food on there, right? Or your kids. I have two kids. I know what it's like for people who don't care how cute they are 
yet I force them to care because I know how cute they are and they must know, right? Every parent does that. Why? Because you love this person or this food, it tastes so good, or this mountain range that is just taking your breath away, and so you have to share it. You have to have other people share it, not just so they know you've enjoyed it, but you want them to enjoy it too. And here David has tasted and seen that the Lord is good. He's seen his sweet salvation. He's tasted it as he's reminded his heart of it. He's seen his unthinkable character and how that character spills out onto rebels and his steadfast love that abounds for sinners. And he has to call all others in to praise this God who is this glorious. And then lastly, the last verse, he joins in this chorus of creation and says, bless the Lord, O my soul. That's where he ends. Incredible things can happen when you don't feel like praying. David didn't feel like it. And instead of letting his emotions rule, he doesn't buy it and grabs hold of God's truth and reminds himself, preaches to his apathetic heart until finally he and all of creation are praising the King of Kings. And truly an incredible psalm. And there's one question left for you and for me that maybe you've had throughout because I skipped over some clarifiers that David gives here. The question is, if we know we are sinful, he is infinitely holy and we're, we are eternally separated. How are these things true of us if we are the rebels that the scriptures Say that we are. He says, the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him. There's times when I don't fear him. His righteousness to children's children on those who keep his covenant. How many times have I broken his covenant? And we begin to see these promises, these glorious truths slip away. How can these be true of us is the great question, the eternal question. And there's one way. There's only one who is always perfectly feared, his father. There's only one who has never broken a single command and a single covenant of his father. And God so loved the world that he sent him. Jesus Christ, quite simply, is your ultimate salvation. He doesn't just forgive your iniquity as if wiping it away. He takes on your iniquity. He becomes a man of sorrows and he lets your sin and my sin crush him so that you could be washed clean, so that you could be forgiven. He doesn't just redeem you out of any pit. He redeems you from the ultimate pit, the eternal pit to bring you into eternal life. He doesn't just satisfy you with good as if he was just giving you a gift. He says, I am goodness himself and I've come so that you might be eternally satisfied in me that you might never go hungry again and never go thirsty again. He's our ultimate salvation. He's the perfect revelation of God's character. He's the image of the invisible God, the exact image, and he's the one who has truly come down from his heavenly throne, not for the righteous, not for those who need no need of a doctor, but who? For the outcast, for the leper. I came not for the righteous, but for Sinners, He doesn't just come for the lowly and the oppressed. In fact, he becomes the lowly and the oppressed all so that he can give his righteousness to those who don't deserve it. He came quite simply so that we could know God. 
the character of this God. As Moses cries out, show me your glory. I want to see your face, O God. And God says, no. What does Jesus say? He who has seen me has seen the Father. God won't just be like a father to you. If you come to Jesus, he will be your father. You will cry out, Abba, Father, because the eternal son has come down so that you and I could be adopted sons and daughters. The son by his very nature has made us sons and daughters by grace. He's the ultimate salvation. He's the ultimate revelation of God's character. And he's the ultimate display of God's compassion, the infinite wrath that you and I deserve, he takes. In the garden, he doesn't pass the cup around. He says, I'll take this cup and I'll drink every last drop of wrath so that there's nothing left for you. I'll take what I don't deserve and what you do deserve so that you can have the glory that you don't deserve. I'll be cast out so that you can be brought in so the steadfast love of God might truly be from everlasting to ever." lasting and so that to quote paul nothing can separate you from his love nothing in all creation can separate you from his love he's the ultimate salvation character compassion and he's the true king of kings the true king of the kingdom sitting enthroned in the heavens who one day every knee every tribe tongue and nation will bow before and you will be brought in to his eternal kingdom as every tear is wiped away And you won't just see beauty as if you're staring at a mountain range. You will know and live with beauty himself for all of eternity. This incredible psalm up here and us down here. These things are only true of us. These things are only living water for our dry soul in Christ. But in Christ, all of these things are poured out over us. So look to him. Don't look here. Don't look to your works. Don't trust in your own efforts. Look to him. The old Scottish pastor, Robert Murray McShane, says this. Learn much of the Lord Jesus Christ. For every look at yourself, take ten looks at Christ. He is altogether lovely, such infinite majesty, and yet such meekness and grace, all for sinners, even the chief. Live much in the smiles of God. Bask in His beams. Feel His all-seeing eye settle on you in love and rest in His almighty arms. Let your soul be filled with the heart-ravishing sense of the sweetness of the excellency of Christ and all that is in Him. And let the Holy Spirit fill every chamber of your heart so that there will be no room for folly or of the world or Satan or the flesh. When you don't feel like praying, preach to your heart. Preach the gospel of your salvation in Jesus Christ. Preach the character of God, the beauty of God's revealed character that you know because of Jesus Christ, the light of the glory of the knowledge of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Look at the compassion of God in Jesus Christ and look at the King of the kingdom of God and Jesus Christ and let your heart soar in praise. Let me pray for us. Father, we love you. I pray, uh, Lord, that you would do that. We are humans here this side of glory. We will 
constantly fall. We will always feel, we're often rather feel dry. We have a day when all pain and sorrow and tears are wiped away and it's coming, but we're not there yet. And so I pray that you would set our eyes on our Savior, that we would be those like Hebrews 12 said, who look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, and as a result, lay aside every sin and every weight. I pray that you would keep us from the temptation of looking to ourselves for satisfaction in ourselves, of looking at our own performance. I pray that that would be dust and that it would quickly push our eyes back up. And Father, I pray that we wouldn't just be those who look at what you do for us, praise you for your glorious salvation. But I pray that we would know you. You've made us your children. I pray that we would know our Father. I pray that we would know our divine brother and our Savior in Jesus. And I pray that we would be those who walk in the Spirit, who bear the fruit of the Spirit, that we would experience the unthinkable joy of knowing you and the unsearchable riches that are in your Son. And that is all a work of your spirit. There's nothing man can do other than stir up temporary motivation. And so I pray that your spirit would minister to us as we uh, even sing here and throughout the day that our eyes would just be lifted to you, Lord. And no matter what we face in this world, the difficulties, we can have a peace that surpasses all understanding because we have you, because we're in Christ. I pray that in his glorious name. Amen.